Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Uh, hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Bill Grant, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum and your chair for uh, today's program. We also welcome our listeners on the radio, and we invite our audience to visit us on the Internet at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Sherry Boshert. Uh, Sherry is the uh, president of the San Francisco Electric Vehicle Association, a member of the executive committee of Plug in America, a member of the Sierra Club um, Bay Chapter Energy Committee, and she had a cameo role in the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? And now uh, Sherry Boshert uh, will give us a talk based on her book, Plug-in Hybrids, The Car That Will Change America. Uh, change America. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming today. I, I have to confess, I was only in Who Killed the Electric Car for one second. I call it my nano cameo. Um, as you said, I'm Sherry Boshert. Professionally, I'm a medical news reporter. I've been a journalist for about 30 years. Uh, right now, I work for International Medical News Group. Uh, before that, I worked on mainstream newspapers and freelance for the New York Times. But I have this separate hat that I wear which started when we put solar panels on our home in 1998. And once we were making electricity from the sun, it was natural to start thinking, what else can we plug in? So we began to look for an electric car. One thing led to another, and here I am with my first book, Plug-in Hybrids, The Cars That Will Recharge America. So what we're going to talk about today is, you know, why plug-in hybrids? And the things I want you to take away from this talk are that plug-in hybrids are cheaper, they're cleaner, and they run more on domestic electricity made in the U.S. of A. And we'll talk about how you can get one. So just a little bit of background. Has anyone here seen the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? Almost everyone. Fabulous. So I don't need to talk about this much. What you saw in the movie is essentially in the first chapter of my book and tells about the struggle over the last 10 years of us getting electric cars by the thousands on the road in California and having them taken away and you can decide for yourself why that happened, having seen the movie. Uh, but it has set the stage now for what's next. There's the movie. If you haven't seen it, you can rent it, or you can buy it from pluginamerica.org. So let's talk about the technology a little bit. We lost the electric cars. There's still about 1,000 on the road, by the way, because groups like Plug in America had demonstrations and saved them from the crushers. Um, and the automakers took part of what they learned from the electric cars and they put them into gasoline-dependent cars. So we have today what you know as the conventional hybrids, the Toyota Prius, the Ford Escape. In the hybrid, you have a few batteries, you have the gas tank, you have the internal combustion engine electric motor, and they use the electric drive to either increase fuel efficiency, like with the Prius, you get about 50 miles per gallon, or to increase power. Here's a plug-in hybrid. 
you add more batteries and the all-important plug to plug it into the wall so that instead of recharging the batteries with the gasoline engine, which you do in a conventional hybrid, which is like driving around a little power plant, you can plug it into the wall with, with electricity that is cleaner, cheaper, and domestic. You still have a gas tank, though, and you still have the internal combustion engine so that when you run out of electricity, you can still drive like a regular hybrid. You can drive to LA just like you would today, but most of your local driving will be on cleaner, cheaper domestic electricity. This is a battery electric vehicle. This is what I drive. Uh, I have a Toyota RAV4 EV. It's a compact SUV, all electric. You'll notice there's no gas engine. There's no gas tank. There's nothing but the electric motor, a whole bunch of batteries, and the all-important plug. My car can go about 125 miles before I need to plug it in, which makes it a great local and regional car. I can go down to Santa Cruz about 100 miles away, park and charge for free in their public garage, and by the time I'm done doing whatever I'm there to do, I have enough juice to get home. I can easily have a 200-mile day without waiting around for one second. But it doesn't have the backup fuel tank. I'm not going to drive this car to St. Louis to visit my mother. I'd have to stop every 125 miles and charge for five hours. So they each have their niche. And just for good measure, this is another electric vehicle that gets a lot of press. It's a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle. No gas tank, just a few batteries, but they have a hydrogen tank and a fuel cell stack. But this is essentially an electric car. It's just instead of um, putting the electri electricity directly into the batteries and driving it, they use it to make hydrogen and then run the electric car. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So let's talk a little bit about how plug-in cars are cheaper. In my book, I tell the story of this technology through the people. I'm not really a car geek. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. You know, cars are in my blood, but I'm not a car person. I'm not a technology person. I tell all of the story of the technology and all the details and the data, but through the people. People like Ron Gremben and Felix Kramer. Felix is here today. They founded a group called the California Cars Initiative, calcars.org, and they did the first public conversion of a Prius to a, a plug-in Prius. This is in Ron's garage. And just by putting simple lead-acid bicycle batteries in it, they got over 100 miles per gallon because you can drive more on electricity and less on gasoline. I keep hitting the wrong button. <laughs> so what happens when you add batteries? Felix Kramer uh, hired a Southern California company to convert his car into a plug-in Prius using better lithium-ion batteries, and then he posted a typical day of driving on the web. He drove 51 miles, mostly on the highway, and because it's a plug-in hybrid, he got 124 miles per gallon of gas, plus about a penny worth of electricity per mile, and he produced two-thirds less greenhouse gases because he used 61% less gasoline. The whole day for both the gasoline and electricity cost him $1.76, whereas on gasoline alone, it would have cost him $3.17. So this is real-world comparisons of the same car before and after becoming a plug-in hybrid. Now, other data and research are out there. Uh, the Electric Power Research Institute, which is sort of the research arm of the utility industry, they formed what was called the 
a hybrid electric vehicle working group in the around 2000 or so, which included automakers and utilities and battery makers and others. And they did a lot of data crunching. And what they have here in the bar chart, you have the conventional vehicle, the conventional hybrid, gasoline dependent, and then you have a plug-in hybrid that can go 20 miles on electricity before the gas comes on, and then you have a 60-mile plug-in hybrid. And you can see the more electricity you have, obviously, the less gasoline you use. They calculated that for a mid-sized car, in over 100,000 miles of driving, you would save $5,000 as the owner of that car. So even though initially these cars will probably have a higher sticker price, you will save money over the life of the car. Now, it's not just little cars like the Prius. I mean, I just came back from a little trip to Florida where everyone said, gosh, you know, I can't have a Prius. Where I live, it floods. I need a car that's high off the ground. Or I have a boat, and I need to tow my boat. Can you do it in big cars? Professor Andrew Frank at the University of California, Davis, who I call the godfather of plug-in hybrids, he and his students have been making plug-in hybrids for 10 years, and they very quickly switched from smaller cars to converting large SUVs, because they know that a lot of Americans drive, like to drive large cars. This is a Chevy Suburban. Uh, a few years ago, they converted that to a plug-in hybrid that has a 60-mile electric range. They loaded it down with college students, and that thing could still burn rubber. You have plenty of power with electric drive. The issue has always been the range. With an all-electric car, how far can you go? Power is not the issue. Professor Frank and others, CalCars and others, estimate that if the automakers made new plug-in hybrids, it would add maybe 10 to 15% to the cost of the car initially. And so if you take a Prius and you add 10 or 15%, you have a $27,000 to $30,000 car. That's not out of the range of a lot of cars today. Will people buy them? The three excuses that the car companies consistently have given over the last 10 years when they were fighting against electric cars and now dragging their feet on plug-in hybrids, they give three reasons. Nobody wants these cars. Nobody wants to plug in. The batteries aren't ready, and they're too expensive. Well, recent polls show people do want these cars. 33% of new car buyers in an uh, internet poll who were serious about getting alternative fuel cars, 33% um, were serious about getting alternative fuel cars, and 92% of those were willing to pay nearly $10,000 extra for them, more than the premium of a plug-in hybrid would be. And this is sort of a tribute to what CalCars and others have done in the last few years in putting the word out about plug-in hybrids. In a separate poll, 75% of people had heard of plug-in hybrids, and the majority thought they were a good idea. So let's go a little bit to cleaner. This is really why I got into it. I put up the solar panels. I'm making electricity from the sun. Well, not everyone can do that. What if you plug in to a regular wall? Here's another character in my book who's also here today, Mark Geller, who is uh, vice president of the San Francisco Electric Vehicle Association and also on the executive committee of Plug in America. Mark basically just didn't take no for an answer when they were taking away our electric cars. He and I both leased the Ford Think City. Great little city car. You'll see a picture of that later. And Mark drew in Rainforest Action Network and Global Exchange and other groups to help save those 1,000 electric cars we saved. People like you and me. These are the characters in the book, with one exception that I'll get to later, who's not exactly like you and me. So just to look at the data very briefly, we're going to talk about well-to-wheels emission, because it's not really fair to compare cars by just what comes out the tailpipe. 
Electric cars don't even have a tailpipe. So you look at what's the pollution involved in making the electricity and coming out of the car, or what's the, what's the pollution involved in making the gasoline and coming out of the tailpipe? Because gasoline doesn't magically appear out of nowhere, right? So here's what we're going to compare. Internal combustion engine, ICE, hybrid gasoline uh, vehicles, that's the conventional hybrids, plug-in hybrids, PHEVs, all-electric EVs, and hydrogen fuel cells. And this is Argonne National Laboratory data. Don't take my word for it. I've put the studies up on my website. The first bar graph here is the main greenhouse gas we're concerned about with cars, carbon dioxide. And a third of U.S. greenhouse gases do come out of car tailpipes. So we've got to deal with this issue to stop the climate crisis. You can see with this and with these other pollutants that are what's called criteria pollutants that are involved in making smog and causing respiratory illness, things like carbon monoxide, volatile organic compounds, sulfur oxides. We'll get to this one in a second. But in almost every case, the more electricity you have on board, the cleaner it gets, the, the difference being hydrogen fuel cells. And we'll get to that in a second, but it's mostly because that car is less efficient than the all-electric. Sulfur oxides, this one looks scary because the bars are going up. Oh my gosh, more electricity means more sulfur oxides? Well, theoretically, yes, if we didn't have regulations on the power plants, but we do and we need more of them. Hopefully soon we'll have a carbon cap too, and this whole issue will go away. Because we do have regulations, when I did my research, I found that, for instance, sulfur oxide emissions, that last bar graph we saw that looked so scary, they've actually fallen from 15 million metric tons per year to 10 million metric tons per year between 1993 and 2004, because we have laws saying that utilities and power plants are not allowed to spew this gunk into our air. Same thing with nitrogen oxides. We do need to continue this because another third of our greenhouse gases come out of power plants. So we need to clean up the power plants and the cars at the same time. This is happening. We will continue that and we need to move forward on the cars. Bonuses include, you know, with whatever emissions are coming out of the smokestacks, um, the power plants are away from the congested city centers where most of the people are. And it's also easier to regulate a few thousand power plants than 200 million cars. Those bar charts that I showed you, by the way, are based on U.S. national data, where more than half of our electricity comes from dirty, nasty coal. We're not going to be on coal that much longer, if we have any sense. But again, don't take my word for these. More than 30 studies support these findings. I put a synopsis in my book, and you can find the studies themselves and hopefully links to them when I add those soon on my website, sherrybosher.com. So just two words about hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, because you see that a lot in the press and in the media. Isn't that the flavor of the day? Hydrogen? Nothing comes out the tailpipe but a little trickle of water. Well, I have no doubt that the car companies can eventually build really great hydrogen fuel cell cars. Right now they cost millions of dollars and the fueling stations cost a million dollars each. But where do we get the hydrogen? That's the ultimate problem. Right now, there are two places to get hydrogen. On the left is another bar chart where you can take natural gas and reformulate it into hydrogen and put that into a hydrogen car and run it. But why would you want to? Honda right now sells a compressed natural gas car. If you run a compressed natural gas car, you can go 64% further than using that natural gas to make hydrogen to run a hydrogen car. So that doesn't make sense. And hydrogen boosters always say, well, we're not going to deal with fossil fuels anyway. 
we're going to use clean, renewable electricity, wind power or solar power for this other process, this other way of getting hydrogen, which is applying electricity to water, H2O, to pull that H, that hydrogen, out of water. Because hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, but it doesn't exist by itself. It's always tightly bound with something else. So that's why there's energy involved in separating it and using it for something. Well, sure, you can apply electricity from solar panels to water to get hydrogen and put that into a hydrogen fuel cell stack. But again, why would you want to? You need to use four times as many solar panels. You need 400% more electricity to take that electricity, apply it to water, to get the hydrogen, to put it in a fuel cell stack, to convert it back to electricity, to drive what is essentially an electric car, compared to taking that electricity, putting it in the batteries, and driving an electric car. So hydrogen, I believe, has some potential for stationary applications, like heating buildings for cars. We can't afford four times as many solar panels than we actually need as a society. I don't think it makes sense. As we move forward, of course, up with all of this understanding now about climate change and the climate crisis, we're going to be getting off of fossil fuels. We have to if we care about our children and our grandchildren. We're going to be putting in more wind and more solar. The cleaner the grid gets, the cleaner plug-in cars get. Gasoline cars are only going to get dirtier. We're running out of cheap sources of oil in the world. There are other sources, but they're going to be hard to get at, hard to extract, more costly and create a lot more pollution, for instance, trying to squeeze oil out of the tar sands of Canada. So more wind and solar are in our future. Here's a couple examples of an, the, the synergy between renewable power and electric cars. It's not just that, well, if we clean up the grid, these cars are cleaner. There's more of an interplay that I love. When you get on what's called time of use metering, which you can get on even without a plug-in car, if you want. It's beneficial, especially for people with solar panels. You plug in your car at night, especially with plug-in hybrids. You're not going to worry about, where am I going to plug in during the day? Because you have that gas tank as a backup. You just plug it in when you get home at night. If you forget, no big deal. It runs just like a hybrid, which is the most efficient car out there. But if you do plug it in, you get 100 miles per gallon. So I think you'll remember to plug it in. When you charge at night, it costs about one or two cents a mile compared to if you're buying gasoline at $2.50 a gallon, it costs 13 cents a mile. Driving on electricity is cheaper. You can put up solar panels enough to create the electricity that you run your car on. A uh, typical car that drives about 12,000 miles a year, you'd need about a two kilowatt rooftop system, costs maybe $15,000 up front, uh, but you make it back fairly quickly within six to eight years or less. And think about it, if you have a plug-in car, you're not just using those panels to displace electricity, you're using those panels to displace gasoline, which is much more expensive. So you recoup your investment on the solar panels that much faster. And here's my fa latest favorite topic. I'm going to be speaking about this more in detail next week at the Sierra Club, Thursday night, March 8th at 7 p.m., 85 2nd Street. It's called Vehicle to Grid Technology. And this is what has a lot of environmentalists like myself really excited. Not only can we put that electricity into the batteries of cars, but with vehicle-to-grid te technology, you can pull some of that back out during the daytime for various usage. Why is that helpful? And this is an example of a, a demonstration that was done for the Air Quality Management Board 
Um, actually, I think it was the California Air Resources Board that AC Propulsion did this for. This is a little VW Beetle that they converted to a vehicle-to-grid bidirectional charging vehicle. It can feed the electricity from the batteries either back into the grid or perhaps to power a house or power tools or whatever. This is a picture of a website called Toyota Dreamhouse Pappy. Now, I have no idea what Pappy means. It's been up for close to two years now. And Toyota's dream house is covered with solar panels, appropriately so. And in their garage, they have two vehicles, two plug-in vehicles. One is a neighborhood electric vehicle, which is kind of a glorified golf cart. And you can buy these today from Chrysler and from Zen Motor Cars and others. They're limited to 25 miles per, miles per hour top speed. So they're neighborhood electric vehicles, um, good for retirement communities, good for fleets good for uh, neighborhood streets, not on the freeway. And next to it, they have a plug-in Prius. And the website says, if the power goes down because of a hurricane, your car can power your house for 36 hours. Would that be helpful in an earthquake? Probably. The average car gets driven about three hours a day. So it's parked 21 hours. There are utilities and businesses and others looking into this because there's potential here. In September, in front of the California Air Resources Board, they had a three-day technology review. And BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, um, they presented a study that they did. A lot of people drive their cars to BART lots, and they park there, and they take BART into the city to work. The cars are just sitting there all day, right? Well, BART has to contract for its electricity uh, on an annual basis. They have to estimate how much electricity they think they're going to use. If they go above that estimate, they pay a whopping premium, a higher price for that electricity. So they do everything in their power to stay below that estimate. They calculated that if people had plug-in hybrids and they let them charge, not just park, but charge in their parking lots, charge for free, so you wouldn't even have to plug it in at home. You would just plug it in in the BART lot. In uh, exchange for having a contract with that car owner so that if they if their electricity usage starts to approach that limit, that estimate that they had, and they don't want to go over, they can pull a little of your electricity out of your car to keep them below that limit. So even if, when they reach those, those crisis points, even if only half the cars in their lots were plug-in hybrids and they were only half full, they would save $265,000 a year by staying below those limits. So others have estimated that utilities might have a contract with car owners and pay them $2,000 a year for the privilege of taking out a little bit of electricity now and then if we need to, to meet those peak demand hours instead of running the polluting peaker power plants. This is good for all areas of the country. In Florida, which I just came back from, they don't have a lot of wind, but they have a lot of sun. The peak time for sun is between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. You put some sun into the cars then, you can pull it out later in the day when everyone's when it's really getting hot and muggy and everyone's turning on their air conditioners. You can use you can shift that solar and use it when we need to. The real potential is in wind power. The U.S. Department of Energy estimated that if we had a lot of plug-in cars out there, it would increase our access to wind power by a factor of three. Why? A lot of wind blows at night. People are asleep. There's no one awake to use it. There's no place to store it. This is why the city of Austin, Texas started a campaign, because they have a lot of West Texas wind. And their motto now is, we want to replace Middle East oil with West Texas wind. How? Put it into cars at night and be able to pull it out during the day. 
AC Propulsion, which did that little plug bug I showed you earlier, they calculated that a million cars out there with vehicle-to-grid technology would have enough power that would be the equivalent of about 20 average power plants. That's a million cars. There are 200 million cars on the road right now. So you can see the exciting potential, but this is all in its infancy. It just shows that we have directions we can pursue. We don't have to go with business as usual. So the last category, electricity is domestic. I don't think we're ever going to fight a war over electricity. And people have signed on to plug-in hybrids and are pushing them for these reasons. Here's one of them, another character in my book, the one who I said is not exactly like most of us. He's a former CIA director, Jim Woolsey. He's a neoconservative national security hawk. He and others, like Frank Gaffney, who was in the Pentagon during Reagan's administration, and C. Uh, Boyden Gray, who was the White House counsel, I think, to President Bush Sr., they are pushing for plug-in hybrids. Why? Well, the U.S. gets the majority of its oil from elsewhere, not from our country. Cars and trucks use two-thirds of all of the oil that we import, and it uses a third of all of our energy. If we can get off of oil, we will no longer be so vulnerable to the countries that control the oil. Well, what if we all start plugging in? Will the grid be able to handle it? I mean, here in California, we have experienced rolling blackouts, et cetera. Yes, because remember, cars plug in at night. It's the convenience thing. You plug in when you get home, you forget about it. The US Department of Energy, again, hardly a radical organization, put out a study in January where they calculated that the existing off-peak capacity can handle the daily commutes for 85% of all cars, trucks, and SUVs in this country. That's 187 million vehicles. So that's without building a single new power plant. By the time we have that many plug-in hybrids on the road, we will have installed more wind, more solar. We will have planned for either increasing our power production, or more likely, we will have installed greater efficiencies so that our demand hasn't increased. I mean, that's one of the, the biggest wedges we can use against climate change is to install more efficiencies. President Bush, after his State of the Union, where he mentioned for the second year in a row plug-in hybrids, the very next day, very quietly, issued an executive order saying that federal agencies that operate fleets of 20 or more vehicles must use plug-in hybrids when they become available, that's the key word, and when they have life cycle costs comparable to non-plug-in hybrids. Well, we've already showed you data, and there are plenty of studies showing that the life cycle costs are not only comparable, they're better. You save money with plug-in hybrids. So the available is the key word. There's legislation in Congress we should all know about, uh, not just being run by the neoconservatives. These are bipartisan bills in both the House and the Senate. It's called the DRIVE Act, Dependence Reduction Through Innovation in Vehicles and Energy. And this bill pushes incentives and uh, funding and research to get plug-in hybrids on the road. Uh, it also deals with biofuels. It moves us away from petroleum. We need to make sure that all of our representatives have signed on to this bill and that it gets passed soon. So how can you get one? Availability, that's the key. Chelsea Sexton, another character in my book, and almost all of you have seen the movie, so you might recognize her. She was hired by General Motors to promote the EV1 electric car, and she did it very well. Um, and eventually they fired her and others when they canceled their program. 
but she has continued to promote the EV1 and other plug-in hybrids. She's now the executive director of Plug-in America. Plug-in America is playing a key role in getting us these cars as quickly as possible. These are all the major car companies, or at least some of them, but most of them, who have worked on plug-in hybrids. The ones in greens are the ones who have announced in the last year or so that they are developing new plug-in cars. Subaru and Mitsubishi even said they have new all-electric vehicles coming in 2009 and 2010. But all of these people worked on them. This isn't new technology. Ford Motors um, bought Volvo in the 1990s. Volvo had a plug-in hybrid that they liked so well, the Swedish company, they started building a fleet of them in Sweden. But when Ford bought them in 1998, they shut the program down and told everyone to concentrate on their core technology, which was gasoline-dependent SUVs. So we lost their plug-in hybrid, at least temporarily. So in January, General Motors unveiled a new prototype plug-in hybrid, the Chevy Volt. Have any of you heard news reports of that? Anyone seen that? It caused quite a, quite a stir. I mean, after all the publicity that they got in the past year from who killed the electric car, GM had a black eye, and so then in Detroit in January to unveil a new plug-in hybrid caused a big stir. Very exciting, the Chevy Volt. So let's take a look at General Motors' first plug-in hybrid. That's not the Chevy Volt. That's a plug-in EV1, which is what they showed at car shows in the 1990s. People would walk up to Chelsea Sexton and say, oh, so it has electricity and a gas tank? That's what we want. But they were so busy fighting California's zero-emission vehicle mandate and trying to not have to make all electric cars and not be told what to do that these just kind of got shoved off to the side and forgotten about. Okay, so General Motors' second plug-in hybrid. That's not the Chevy Volt either. This was shown by Saab, which is a division of General Motors, last spring at the Swedish Auto Show. I don't know if you know, but Sweden has declared that it will be the first country to become completely fossil fuel free. So Saab created a plug-in hybrid that runs on electricity and 100% ethanol, no fossil fuels plug-in parallel hybrid, 500-mile range. Uh, but about a week or two before the Swedish Auto Show, the word came down from GM to Saab to cover up the plug and not talk about this as a plug-in hybrid, just talk about it as a hybrid. There were reports in the Swedish newspapers about this, and I happened, because I was researching and uh, doing the book at the time, I happened to get a copy of the original press release from Saab about the car that does talk about it as a plug-in hybrid. So I know it's not just rumor. It is a plug-in hybrid. Okay, General Motors' third plug-in hybrid. Yes, it's a Chevy Volt, the one that came out this January. 640 total mile range before you need to either fill up the gas tank or plug in your car, either one. Has a 40-mile range on electricity. 40 miles covers most commutes in the country, according to Department of Transportation statistics. And it has gasoline as a backup. You can't get this car yet, though. General Motors isn't saying when it will be available. All those cars who said, all those car companies who said they're developing new plug-in hybrids haven't said when they'll be available. The technology is here today. What we're missing is the political will, and um, there's some bad business decisions being made, if you ask me. It's not just GM. Ford also showed a plug-in hybrid in January at the Washington, D.C. auto show. This one, the high-series drive, is the Ford Edge that they uh, turned into a plug-in hybrid. The backup can be gasoline, diesel, or a fuel cell. Um, 
the General Motors uh, Chevrolet Volt also was a flex fuel backup, could run on gasoline or E85 ethanol or biodiesel as your backup. The Ford Edge, 25-mile electric range, total 225 miles, but the only one they've shown so far is this fuel cell version. It costs $2 million. Even fuel cell vehicle advocates admit it will be decades before hydrogen fuel cell cars make sense or are available, if ever. We can't pin our hopes on that. Experts say we have 10 years to turn around our carbon emissions and put a stop to global warming. We don't have time to wait for these cars. So people have started to push and say, we want the cars now. Because remember those three excuses the car companies give? Nobody wants them, the batteries don't work, and they're too expensive. Well, they're going to save you money over the life of the car. People, those of us who've been driving the batteries in Plug in America and those thousand cars that we saved, we know the batteries do work. The batteries are ready today if they go with nickel metal hydride or even lead acid or, you know, the lithium will be ready very shortly. And so nobody wants them. Austin, Texas has the Plug in Partners campaign to show that people do want them. One thing we all can do is get the businesses we work for if they have a fleet or our local communities or our universities that have fleets to sign on as plug-in partners. Austin went around to the largest cities in the United States to sign on as plug-in partners, and I'm happy to say that San Francisco, Alameda, and Marin County are all plug-in partners. Marin has even put in a soft purchase order. These are advanced purchase orders for plug-in hybrids to show that fleets do want these cars. Um, they have more than 8,000 advanced purchase orders for a car that doesn't exist yet, this is demand for these cars. And it's not just plug-in hybrids that people want. There are smaller companies that are still in the game and starting up with all electric vehicles. Any of you hear about the Tesla Motors Roadster? That's a wonderful, speedy sports car. Uh, goes zero to 60 in four seconds, 250 mile range, and it costs $100,000. They've sold uh, nearly 300 of them now. That's $30 million they've raised before they've even delivered the first car. They have an interesting business plan. They are coming out with a Roadster, and they just signed a deal uh, to build a manufacturing plant in Albuquerque, Texas. Albu I'm sorry, Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> I love Texas so much. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, to build the next generation of Teslas, which will be a four-door family sedan that would cost forty to 50000 And a couple years after that, they'll come out with a less expensive car. Uh, the Think that got me into this in the first place has been sold a couple of times. They've revived it. Um, they're going to be uh, starting production very soon. I'm not sure when those will be for sale here, but I'm very optimistic. AC Propulsion, the company that uh, did the plug buck de demonstrations and others, they now have what they call the E-Box, which is all electric. Um, I think it sells for about 60000 These are expensive because they're almost hand-built. If a major car company mass produces these cars, and we're only talking 20,000 a year, 200,000 a year, not that many, the cost would be much less expensive. So how can you get a plug-in hybrid? I hate to end on kind of a down note, but the only way you can get one today is if you convert it yourself. CalCars has done a couple of conversions. They have a website where they've hooked up with the Electric Auto Association, and they're putting together sort of a how-to kit. If you have some experience with high-voltage electronics and you want to try converting your own Prius, there will be instructions, perhaps a video to show you, and you may be able to buy a, a kit of parts from them. 
But really, in my view, what we all need to do is take a stand. We need to say, these cars are ready today, the infrastructure's here today, there's plugs everywhere, and we need to move quickly. We need to push our elected rep representatives to have the regulations to push the car companies to do this, and we as consumers need to demand these cars and pull the car companies with consumer demand. Pluginamerica.org has the phone numbers of all the major car companies. I urge you to call them and tell them, I am not going to buy another new car until it has a plug on it. And we'll get these cars a lot faster. No plug, no deal. These are the kinds of people like you and me who are bringing these cars to market. We all have a role to play. Every little thing you do counts, whether it's calling the car companies, calling your dealers, um, supporting cow cars, supporting Plug in America, uh, many things you could do. Write a letter to the editor, say no plug, no deal. We'll get these cars a lot faster. Contact your elected representatives. The California Air Resources Board this year probably will be revising the zero emission vehicle mandate that brought us the electric cars in the first place. Plug in America is very actively engaged in lobbying in that process and making sure that it's you know, written in a way that we get these cars back as quickly as possible. That's my talk. Um, there will be books for sale uh, outside and I'd be happy to sign them and I will stay here uh, and answer questions. I'd love to do some Q&A if you have some questions because we have some time. And I also want to say that after a few questions, uh, we do have a copy of Who Killed the Electric Car that we will raffle off if people are interested in donating to the San Francisco Electric Vehicle Association. The proceeds from this raffle will go to the SFEVA. Thank you. Our thanks to uh, Sherry Boshert for her comments here today on plug-in hybrids. I am Bill Grant, a member of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum. We will be t uh, taking questions directly from the audience today, uh, so please speak clearly into the microphone so our radio listeners can uh, hear your questions. I, I have a couple of questions. <clears throat> My first is, have you um, approached any kind of, or has Plug in America approached the police officers about whether there's interest and whether the feasibility for making all um, police cars plug in and looking at large fleets. And then can you address the issue of battery production and disposal? Because I understand there's a lot of, there may be hazardous materials used in those. Um, and just sort of those general life cycle issues in terms of the car manufacturer. Yeah, let me answer that second one first about uh, battery disposal and recycling. There's a very good synopsis of this on hybridcars.com. Uh, they looked into it in terms of hybrid cars. Recycling programs are in place. 98% of lead-acid batteries, which are in every car in America right now, are recycled. And the 2% that aren't are because people don't bring them in. The metals that are in nickel-metal hydride batteries, like in my all-electric car, and the newer ones are talking about the lithium-ion, are even more valuable metals. Those will be recycled. Now, I'm sure there are instances of batteries being you know, shipped over to Taiwan and dumped or something. Uh, but for the most part, these are recycled. As with any industry, we need to you know, keep an eye on things. But compared to the environmental damage done by gasoline, it's a no-brainer. In terms of converting police fleets to plug-in hybrids, um, 
right now there's interest from various uh, areas to do fleet conversions. The New York State has set aside $10 million to convert uh, hundreds of their hybrids to plug-in hybrids. Right now there aren't that many conversion services. There's only about three that I know of, although there are other smaller ones, not talking just about cars, but there's a company on Long Island, New York called Odyne that is converting trash trucks to be plug-in hybrids so that the workers don't have to breathe the fumes. PG&E right, right now is testing a hybrid trouble truck. You know those trucks that have the cherry pickers that lift the workers up to the power lines when something's wrong? If that's a plug-in hybrid, again, the worker doesn't have to breathe the diesel fumes. And if the power's down, potentially that truck could power several homes until the power's back up. Um, but right now, there's not huge conversion services. There are state agencies and others looking into this, but it's a little early to be going around to smaller organizations like individual police departments. I have a question. Um, you mentioned the glorified golf cart that's available now that's all electric that will only go 25 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Is there an op option that would go 50 miles an hour or something like that that is available today, just a straight electric? Unfortunately, no, and it's one of the reasons I'm promoting the DRIVE Act. The DRIVE Act does contain a provision to look into creating a new category, a new class of cars under the Department of Transportation regulations that would be called a city car. They have these in Europe, and that's essentially what my Think was. Think was made in Norway, and Ford brought it into the country under a waiver from the Department of Transportation. The thing is, to go faster than 25 miles per hour, you have to do crash testing to US specifications, which takes about $10 million. So a lot of the little electric car companies don't bother with that and, uh, and just go with the 25 miles per hour. Um, the Think that I originally drove, made in Norway, and they have these in Europe, could go 55 miles per hour, had a range of about 35 to 50 miles, and it was an epiphany for me that those seemed like so few miles, and yet they met all of my driving needs, almost all of my driving needs. And it was so tiny, I could park it anywhere, which in San Francisco is key. You know those little curbs in between driveways where no one can park? I could park there. It was great. So we need to get, whether it's through California State, and I, I have heard, and I haven't checked this out yet, but someone told me at a, a talk earlier this week that uh, Washington State is looking into creating this kind of city car classification. So that's maybe something we can get going in California or on the national level through the DRIVE Act and others. But until then, no, your choices are 25 miles per hour or there's nothing else out there right now. I have uh, one comment and two questions. Uh, comment is that if you can't afford to put solar powers on your roof, um, you can purchase renewable energy credits so you could offset the power you're putting into your car with solar or wind. Um, which is an interesting concept. Yeah. The questions are, if you did a do-it-yourself with an existing hybrid, um, what's the typical cost of the conversion? And the second question is um, more of a logistical. In San Francisco, many people have to either have street parking or they park in an apartment building or in a garage where you, you can't just plug in. And so that creates a big logistical problem of if you had a plug-in vehicle, where would you plug it in? Right. I mean. Initially, the audience, you know, the market for these cars are going to be people who have garages or carports where they can plug in or at work can plug in. Um, but eventually, once these cars are on the market, 
you're going to be seeing things pop up, like BART putting plugs in their commuter lots, like shopping centers saying, come shop at our place and you can plug in. So initially for apartment dwellers, no, this isn't going to be the car for you. But we're still talking about hundreds of millions of people who would want these cars. If you were going to convert a Prius to a plug-in yourself, um, it depends on what kind of batteries you use. The self-conversions most likely are going to use lead-acid batteries because they're cheap and they're available. And that conversion with the parts, Ron Gremben just told me this morning, costs about $5,000. That doesn't include the labor. There's lots of labor. The few conversion services that exist have talked about wanting to offer to consumers the service of converting your car. They don't do it yet, and I wouldn't hold your breath. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But they talked in the range of charging ten dollars to $12,000 for it because they would use lithium-ion batteries, and again, it's the labor. If the car companies did it from the get-go, remember, you're converting a car that wasn't designed to be this way. If you did it from the get-go, it's less expensive. You don't have to use some of the things you need to use to convert it. You have the economies of scale. So that's the ballpark figure. I wanted to mention, too, before I forget, that if anyone here wants to see a plug-in hybrid, PG&E has one that was converted by the Southern California conversion company, uh, eDrive, Energy CS. And this man right here, Sven Thiessen, it's from PG&E. If you're interested afterwards, he will walk you to the car. It's parked around the corner. There's no place to park it closer. But if you want to see your, a live one, there it is. Any other questions? Uh, I've heard rumors that, and they may just be rumors, but that Toyota is planning a version of a plug-in Prius. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, it depends on which Toyota official you hear quoted in the media. They have said conflicting things. Our spies inside the company tell us that they do have a plug-in Prius. Question is, when are they going to give it to us? They could give it to us today. Um, they, you know, variously talk about having it available in a few years. Lately, the talk from Toyota has been disheartening. I mean, their big splash at the, De at the Detroit Auto Show in January was their biggest SUV ever. Um, and lately, they're talking about the next generation Prius getting, you know, another, an extra 20 miles per gallon or something, but still being a gasoline-dependent car, I think. They're a little hard to decipher. So, again, I think it comes down to us. If you tell them, Toyota, I'm not buying another one of your cars until it has a plug on it. I mean, think about it. They've got the environmental darling. They've got the Prius. They've got the best hybrid out there, fuel efficiency-wise. No big motivation to change that, right? Everyone else is playing catch-up. GM's going bankrupt. Ford's going bankrupt. They've got to do something. So we can play a role, and government can play a role in getting these cars on the market. Uh, sure, yes. As a former Sparrow co-owner, um, I've enjoyed you know, zipping around the power of an all-electric uh, vehicle. Uh, it's, it's too bad they, they didn't last. But I was wondering if you have data on the percent of overall greenhouse gases that come from our uh, transportation and from, from autos in particular and how, much, how important this is. Yeah, of all the greenhouse gases that the U.S. produces, one-third comes out of car tailpipes. Another third comes out of power plants. So both of those we need to clean up. And I just want to explain to people, this gentleman drove a Sparrow, uh, which is another option that's available right now. It's a one-person commuter car, basically. It has three wheels, so technically it's classified as a motorcycle. So it can go faster than 25 miles per hour. It goes freeway speeds, has a range of about, it goes about 55, has a range of about 30, 35 miles, um, and they 
went bankrupt, but they were bought by a Ohio company called Myers Motors, and they have renamed it the No More Gas Car, the NMG, and you can still get that, and uh, it's a funky looking car, it's great. Maybe one more question and then we'll do the uh, DVD auction. Yeah, in today's technology on the batteries, uh, what is the life cycle of the batteries, mm -hmm. and what's the replacement cost? Very good question. And I meant to say this when you asked about do-it-yourself conversions. With lead-acid batteries, those are the cheapest and very available, but you'll probably have to replace them every year or two. And so you factor that in. I mean, when I lost my Ford Think, I drove a conversion for a while, a car that had been converted from gasoline to all-electric. I bought it on eBay for $4,000 from a guy in Texas and shipped it here. It needed new batteries, and the batteries cost me $1,100 for a fully electric car. For a plug-in hybrid, it would be less than that. Um, but yes, lead acid you'd have to replace. Nickel metal hydride, like that's in my Toyota RAV4 right now, lasts the life of the car. Lithium is a little too new, although it's looking good. and hasn't been around quite long enough for them to feel comfortable offering the 10-year, 150,000-mile warranty. Sure. I think, yeah. uh, I'd like to remind our listening audience that we're, this is a program of the uh, Commonwealth Club of California, and you're listening to Sherry Boshert talk about the plug-in hybrid. So we'll take some more questions. He says we have time for a few more questions before we do the raffle. Anyone? On those nickel metal hydride batteries, uh, are they like what, what they were in computers a while ago where you almost had to deplete the thing totally before you charged them, or have they changed that... Uh, uh, no, you might be thinking of NICADs, nickel cadmium. Oh, I'm sorry. Perhaps and I was. Okay. Yeah, okay. those were like that, and they're pretty much not in use anymore because they were pretty toxic. I have a question about uh, public policy. So uh, what, what is the pressure point uh, in Washington that would be most uh, receptive or most uh, helpful if we were as a, you know, as to, for lobbying for put, putting pressure on, uh, uh, you know, what would be the place where we should put our pressure to accelerate this progress? Well, on the national level, and I'm going to ask Felix Kramer maybe to say a couple words after this, uh, on the national level, I think pushing for the DRIVE Act has a very good chance this year. It's bipartisan legislation. How often do you see that? I mean, people on both sides of the aisle, like the people in my book, both ends of the political spectrum, we don't agree on a lot. I mean, Jim Wolsey and I put us in a room, you know, I'm not going to agree on nuclear power, I'm not going to agree on a lot of the things that people want to, you know, save us from the terror, but we do agree on plug-in hybrids. The DRIVE Act is similar. They have found some common ground. Let's get that pushed. There are other things we can do locally on the state level, but Felix, anything? Felix is the founder of CalCars, and uh, he might have a better sense of what's up. Yeah, um, on the uh, national effort, uh, the people leading that effort are a group called Set America Free, and their website is setamericafree.org, and you can go there for the latest about those bills. You can also, once you have the bill numbers, go to the Thomas uh, Library of Congress uh, area, and, and you, can find that, you can find that also in the CalCars News section when we, when we point to those, have information about those bills. And you can search for the bill and see if your representative has endorsed the bill or your senator, and, and put pressure on that way, send emails to people in other parts of the country. There are currently 65 members of the House and 20, 35 members, I believe, of the Senate. And what's important is about this is this is a bill designed to pass. It's not a showcase bill. 
So it's bipartisan and bicameral from the start and designed to be something that the president would sign. So that's so a good start. So when he says that it's a bill designed to pass, do I think it's a perfect bill? Does it meet everything I would want? No. Politics is compromise. And if politics is the art of compromise, I think plug-in hybrids are probably the most political cars of all time <laughs> because we're coming together over this. On the state level, I just want to add, a bill has just been introduced that would institute a fee-bait system. And so it would charge fees on cars that produce more greenhouse gases, and it would give rebates to the buyers of cars that produce less greenhouse gases. So it's a revenue-neutral bill. It's not like we have to pay more taxes or anything. But that will be an incentive to drive people towards purchasing cars that are better for us and the planet. Uh, sure, you've talked about uh, what's going on in America and you've talked about some of the foreign uh, companies that are making plug-in hybrids. What do we know about uh, the use or the in interest in plug-in hybrids in Europe and Southeast Asia and, and other countries around the world? Well, right now there aren't really plug-in hybrids in the world. The French company Renault has what they call the Kangoo, uh, which is sold, I think, in Brazil and France, maybe. Not in huge numbers. Um, other than that, there really aren't any out there. Uh, Plug-in hybrids are new and yet not. I mean, the technology has been displayed and investigated and demonstrated for the last 10 years. I mean, it really goes way back. I mean, in the 1900s and 1910s, there were lots of plug-in cars, there were some hybrids, there were some plug-in hybrids. But until just recently, all hybrids, whether they plugged in or not, were just called hybrids. So it's hard to tease out how many there were. And until just recently, the technology didn't exist to make them really viable, elegant uh, machines. Any other questions? OK, our, our thanks to. Um, um, Sherry Boschert for uh, her comments today. And we also thank our audiences here as well as our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 103rd year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. And, and now, and, and now we can auction off the DVD. Okay, my lovely assistant Vanna White will bring up the DVD here. This is my partner Meg. The, like I said, whatever we raise today uh, will go to the San Francisco Electric Vehicle Association, which I'm president of, a chapter of the Electric Auto Association. D these normally sell for $25 on the Plug in America website. Anyone want to buy the DVD of Who Killed the Electric Car and help support our efforts to get these cars back on the road? 20 bucks. 20 bucks. Do I hear 25? Come on, folks, $25. It's a great flick. I'll autograph it for you. <laughs> and, and speaking of autographing, co copies of Sherry's book are for sale outside, and she agreed to sign them. Yes, if, if you buy a book out front, feel free to bring it back in. I'd be happy to sign it for you. $25. Okay, do I hear $30? $30. Who killed the electric car? Not only am I in it for one second, and I defy you to find me, <laughs> but on the extras on the DVD are some scenes from San Francisco that got cut out and left on the editing floor. Mark Geller is in it. I'm in it. At the mock funeral that we had for the Think, which is a key scene in my book, too, um, you'll see us walking towards the camera, he and I, holding flowers. I had a veil on, and I looked very, very sad. <laughs>
But that was, this, that was the event where we, Mark hooked us up with Greenpeace, Rainforest Action Network, Global Exchange. They had a simultaneous demonstration in Norway, took over the Ford building. We ended up saving the things. See those scenes in this movie. 35. Do I hear 35? <laughs> 35 in the back. Okay. How about 40? Come on, $40. Mark and I will both uh, sign it. Felix will sign it. You'll get rides in the all-electric and the PG&E flowing hybrid. 45. Such a package. 45, anybody? Somebody will go up to 45. I'll throw in the infrastructure connection. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the limit on that? The price limit? 45? Anybody? Going once for 40? Going twice for 40? See our solar-powered home. We have a solar-powered home, hot tub, and car. <laughs> yes, you can use the hot tub if you go to fifty dollars. Forty-five dollars, anybody? Forty-five. Yes. All right. All right. Forty-five dollars. Last chance. Fifty dollars. Anybody want to pay fifty dollars for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? All these benefits. Fifty dollars. Going once for 45. Do I hear 50? Going twice? Sold for $45. Thank you. The policy did, the policy against um, gays and lesbians serving in the military um, was, uh, became more firm, became a policy of the Department of Defense. So, yes, it is a modern development. <laughs> okay. okay, thank you. Um, Unfortunately, we have reached the point in our program where there is time for only one more question. And uh, 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 you mentioned, uh, let's see, you mentioned that don't ask, don't tell was this, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, what would you say to a young person who thinks he or she may be lesbian or gay, but uh, who is thinking about joining the military? Again, um, continue to emphasize this point of choice. Um, I would want someone who is considering joining the military to do it with their eyes wide open. Um, it is not an easy life right now under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, you do have to compartmentalize your life and act at work like you're someone other than who you are. Um, and the military, it's not like a nine to five job. You're, you're on ships. You're deployed overseas, you are around uh, your shipmates and your fellow soldiers, not just during the day, but you're often, you know, sharing, um, you know, living spaces with them as well. So um, I would never discourage someone um, for entering the military if that's their passion and that's what they want to do, but I would want them to know all the facts about what their life would be like, and if they're willing to take on that burden, then, um, you know, by all means, uh, follow your heart. Okay. We had one last question I don't think we can answer here, but it, it's always good to have a funny one to end with. Uh, is it true that the Marines is the gayest branch of the service? <laughs> Actually, we can answer that. A good, a good friend of ours was, um, uh, Zoe's in mine, uh, and I think maybe Julian's now, uh, was in the Marines, and he says it's true. <laughs> okay. Our thanks to our panelists, and thanks to our audience here in the Commonwealth Club Gold Room and to our radio listeners. 
And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California celebrating its 104th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. <laughs>